Well, we're going to get started. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday School. Thanks for being here right at the start. Today's review day, most of the classes, quarter two review for the second year of the Answers Bible Curriculum. But in our class today, we're going to be looking at an account that we didn't have time to look at last week. And that's the account of God using Elisha to heal a Syrian leper named Naaman. Uh, just a word, you may notice that the, uh, the screens seem to be refreshing, turning black and then coming back on. That's a hardware issue that we're uh, trying to figure out, but please, your patience with that today. You can always look here. This one seems to be constant. Before we get to today's lesson about Naaman, let's review a little bit of what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked at God's transferring Elijah into heaven and God's replacing Elijah with Elisha. Why did Elijah keep trying to leave Elisha behind? I think that's the best answer, that it was a test or it was part of the training, the last set of training that Elijah was doing for Elisha in ministry. Will you persevere to the end? Will you stick with me into the end in ministry? What request did Elisha make to Elijah before Elijah was taken? I would like a double portion of your spirit. As we saw, Elisha was not asking for double the spiritual power Elisha had. For what was Elisha really asking? Yeah, it was about succession. There's, a, there's empowerment there. Just like a firstborn son who received a double portion, he, I need extra wealth. I need extra, uh, extra empowerment to do this job. But basically, I want to take your place. I want to be your successor. I want the unique empowerment, duties, and difficulties that come with being the prophet in Israel. And this was a hard request because this meant that the same trouble Elijah experienced would happen to Elisha and it meant that only God could grant it. But God did grant Elisha's request and in what two ways do we see Elijah's succession as prophet validated by God? What's one way? Very good. Remember Elijah said, I don't know if I can grant your request, it's a hard request, but if you see me depart from you, you will have what you requested. And he did. Elisha did see Elijah go up to heaven in a whirlwind, in that storm, and in the chariot of fire. And what was the other validation? He was able to do the same miracle that Elisha did, which was to divide the Jordan River and to walk across on dry ground. God confirmed his prophet. Now, many principles from this account, as we saw, apply to us. We have our own inherited responsibility and empowerment as Christ's ambassadors. And though we cannot force results, we cannot make ourselves successful from a human perspective, we can be faithful to the charge handed down to us, as Elijah and Elisha were, and and thereby obtain God's commendation. So let us, by their witness, persevere to the end in ministry. And may God grant us a legacy of righteousness like theirs that will testify to the world even after we die. Questions or comments about last week's lesson? All right, well, to close out the quarter, we're going to look at the account of Elisha and Naaman. This is a famous account, also a profound one. Here's our outline for today's class. We'll look at the context of where this account appears. The chapter is right before 2 Kings 5. Then we'll analyze the account itself. And then we'll consider how this account applies to us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help me to explain this well, some tricky things in this passage. Lord, I pray that you would help me and that you would minister to your people, that you'd build up your church, mature your people, and also 
those that don't know you, God, I pray that you would save them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings 5. Before we read the chapter, we're going to get some context. What's happened since chapter 2, where we last were? Elijah, Elisha exceed, sus, succeeds Elijah in 2 Kings 2, and then he continues to speak and minister for God, and empowered by God. God, meanwhile, continues to validate Elisha by miraculous signs. At the end of 2 Kings 2, young men ridicule God's prophet, and by extension, God himself. Elisha pronounces a curse on them, and they are mauled by bears. It's a miracle. 2 Kings 3, God, according to the word of Elisha, miraculously provides water for Israel and Judah's thirsty armies as they are going out to fight and subdue rebellious Moab. The battle is, or they are able to defeat Moab miraculously in battle, but there's also the miracle of the water for the armies. Now, though the wicked king of Israel, Jehoram, benefits from these miracles, Elisha says it's because of Jehoshaphat that God is even allowing me to talk to you and that these miracles take place. It was on account of righteous Jehoshaphat. In 2 Kings 4, we see a number of miracles. God uses Elisha to miraculously provide for a righteous Israelite widow. She was the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. Who were the sons of the prophets again? Who are the sons of the prophets? Yeah, they're followers of the prophets. Some of them are prophets themselves, but they're righteous men. And their families uh, ostensibly are righteous as well. So they're disciples or followers of God's prophets. So this widow was married to one of the sons of the prophets. He died. And the widow's about to have her two sons sold into slavery because she's in great debt. The creditors are coming. They're going to sell her sons into slavery. But God provides that the little bit of oil she has miraculously will not run out until she fills up a whole bunch of vessels and then is able to sell them, pay her debts, and then live on the rest with her two sons. This is a miracle provided for this righteous Israelite widow. But there are more miracles. Further on in 2 Kings 4, God uses Elisha to miraculously cause a barren but righteous woman from Shunem, that's another town in Israel, so this is another Israelite woman, to conceive and have a son with her aged husband. This is a miracle and a gracious thing from the Lord. Then this son later dies. But God uses Elijah to miraculously raise the boy from the dead. Another big miracle. And at the end of 2 Kings 4, two more miracles. A group of the sons of the prophets accidentally create poisonous stew. They're not able to eat it. But God uses Elisha to miraculously make the stew edible again. And then finally, God uses Elisha to miraculously multiply food for the sons of the prophets. Twenty barley loaves and a few fresh ears of grain fully feed a hundred men, and they even have some left over. Now, I mention all these things to you because you may notice there's a pattern to these miracles, at least when it comes to who's receiving them. Who is receiving these miracles? No, these, these here are Israelites. These are all Israelites. But what else can we say about them? They're not just Israelites. What else do they have in common? They are, 
Yeah, God-fearers, they are righteous. We have these ri- the righteous widow, these two righteous women, and then we have a number of things happening to the sons of the prophets. And we also have the thing happening for Jehoshaphat, who was a righteous king. Those who are not righteous, they are part of the miracle sometimes as well, but it's because of the righteous people or they're on the other side of the miracle, like those, boy, or those young men who are ridiculing, ridiculing God's prophet. But these people that these miracles... Are happen, or the people that these miracles are happening for, they're in distress, they need help, they're Israelites, they're men, women, and children, and they're righteous. They're true followers of Yahweh. Now that's important because that has to do, that has going to have something to do with the account that we're looking at today. So keep that in mind as we now turn to analyze our main passage in 2 Kings 5. Remember that the miracles in the previous context, they take place on behalf of distressed but righteous Israelites. But now, let's look at chapter 5, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Verses 1 to 27, follow along with me, please. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now, as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now, and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent a word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought you will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold now, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please, take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he, will he sacrifice other gods but to the Lord. In this matter, 
May the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? They said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him, and he bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hands and deposited them in the house. And he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Okay, an amazing account. Let's start our analysis with observations. The account focuses on a man named Naaman. What do we learn at the beginning of this account about Naaman? What's one thing? He's a great man, well-respected, Great man, uh, considered great by his master. What else? That's right. He's called the captain, or this would be the supreme commander of the Syrian armies. He is very high up in the king's court, and he has been very successful. It says the Lord had given him victory. He is the successful captain of the armies of the king of Aram. Yes, Danny. Good question. Who was, over what nations was he successful? It's possible that it includes the nation of Israel. He may have actually himself led the Syrian armies against Israel. We don't know that for certain. Various commanders at different times lead the Syrian armies. But he was successful, and certainly the Israelites were a neighbor and sometimes enemy of the kingdom of Aram. Yeah, Danny. Right. It doesn't say that he himself led the raid that resulted in her capture, but she was taken captive by the Arameans. So that does tell you that the relations between the two kingdoms have not been positive. It's normal for raids to, from one side to go to the other, and the Arameans had actually captured this girl. Um, Naaman may have also led raids against Israel. That certainly would have been normal for the Syrian commanders to do. So if he's the commander, the successful commander of the Syrian armies. What else do we learn about Naaman? He is a leper. Yeah, we'll talk more about that in just a second. He's also said to be from Aram. Where is Aram? Yes, Dwayne? Syria. Syria. Yeah, some Bible translations actually translate the term Aram as Syria. It's literally Aram in the Old Testament Hebrew. But Aram, the kingdom of Aram, would be that if Israel's right here, Syria, the kingdom of Aram, would be right to the northeast. So they're very close to Israel. And they're frequently going to be interacting with Israel, especially right after this chapter. Syria, Aram, is going to do a number of things with Israel. 
He's from Aram. That means he's a Gentile, not a Jew. He's also called a man of valor. That could refer to his martial courage or it could refer to his great wealth. That term could mean either of those things. But he's also a leper. Mentioned at the very end, but he was a leper. Now remember the term leprosy has a broader definition in the Bible than it does now. Leprosy, today, also called Hansen's disease, is a serious contagious disease of the nervous system caused by bacterial infection which the body deteriorates from the inside out. There's loss of feeling in various parts of the body, which means the one who has leprosy is not able to notice when he damages the various limbs or parts of his body, and soon those parts actually begin to fall off. It's a very horrific disease. It is curable today with antibiotics, but in Bible times, it was not. If you had leprosy of this type, you would die a slow and humiliating death. But leprosy in the Bible does not necessarily refer to just this serious form of disease. It refers to any number of skin diseases, and some of them were actually pretty mild. Others were serious, like the one I just described. What kind of leprosy does Naaman have? It's actually a difficult question. Let's gather some clues. Notice that though Naaman has leprosy, he's still accomplishing much for himself and for his king. There doesn't appear to be a serious threat of contagion from Naaman since he's constantly interacting with people. He goes in before the king. He has a number of slaves. He's leading soldiers. That says something about the kind of leprosy he has. Another clue is that the appears at the end of the chapter. When Naaman's leprosy is said to come upon Gehazi, Gehazi is described as appearing how? He's described as being white as snow, a leper white as snow. And that, that phrase is sometimes connected with leprosy in the Bible, and it is used at least one other time to describe the totality of leprosy of one other person, and that's Miriam. You may remember Miriam in the Pentateuch is once struck with leprosy when she and Aaron rebelled against Moses. Let me just read to you the description of her leprosy from Numbers 12 because the same description of why the snow is given to her, that should help shed some light on what Naaman has. So this is Numbers 12, verses 10 to 12. And this is what it says. But when the cloud had withdrawn from the tent, God has just rebuked uh, uh, Aaron and Miriam, Behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. As Aaron turned toward Miriam, behold, she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. O do not let her be like one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. That's a very interesting description. and It's quite vivid. This white-like snow leprosy for Miriam, which seems to have some similarity to what is described as happening to Naaman and later Gehazi, makes the person look like a corpse. The flesh looks like it's been half-eaten, half-formed. It's very pale, like snow, perhaps even resembling the look of a stillborn child. That's actually the way the NIV translates that description in Numbers chapter 12. Don't let her look like one born still or a stillborn. So this leprosy is pretty frightening looking. Notice something else, however. Back in our account in 2 Kings 5, actually soon afterwards, though turned a leper at the end of this chapter, Gehazi, we later find Gehazi in the court of the king of Israel in just a few chapters. In 2 Kings 8, he's talking to the king and relating the deeds of Elisha. Now, were people with leprosy allowed in the king's court? 
No. In fact, they weren't even allowed in the towns of Israel. They were to stay outside the camp, outside the towns, because their leprosy was thought to be contagious. It was considered unclean. They couldn't come in. Except for one kind of leprosy. What kind? You may not know or remember, but there was one exception, and I'll read it to you from Leviticus 13. Actually, turn there. You can see this yourself. Turn back to Leviticus 13. This is actually where we get a number of the laws that relate to leprosy. Leviticus 13 and 14. There were different types, and it talks about when you see something that looks leprous, what the priest is supposed to do. And there's one type in the middle of this section which we should pay attention to. Leviticus 13, verses 9 to 17. Verse 9. When the infection of leprosy is on a man, then he shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall then look, and if there is a white swelling in the skin, and it has turned the hair white, and there is quick, raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprosy on the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not isolate him, for he is unclean. Normally, you'd be isolated seven days to see whether the thing progressed. He says, don't even do that. He's unclean. If the leprosy breaks out farther on the skin, and the leprosy covers all the skin of him who has the infection, from his head even to his feet, as far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look. And behold, if the leprosy has covered all his body, he shall pronounce clean him who has the infection. It has all turned white, and he is clean. But whenever raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. The priest shall look at the raw flesh, and he shall pronounce him unclean. The raw flesh is unclean, it is leprosy. Or if the raw flesh turns again and is changed to white, then he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall look at him, and behold, if the infection has turned to white, then the priest shall pronounce clean him who has the infection, he is clean. Very interesting. So, what kind of leprosy actually can still keep one clean? Yeah, Rob. Exactly. If your whole body is covered by the leprosy, then once that happens, you're considered clean. While it's progressing, you're unclean. But once your whole body has turned white and your, all your hair has turned white, you're considered clean. However, you could become unclean again if what happens? If a section of raw flesh appears. So apparently, even after your whole body has been covered by this leprosy, there may be a breakout of some kind of raw flesh, an inflammation of the skin, and... While that's there, you are unclean until it turns back to the white as the rest of the body. So we have these details gathered back in the Second Kings 5. What kind of leprosy does Naaman have? We'll wait to the interpretation step before we take a stab at that question. Let's ask some other questions related to observations. Naaman hears that there's a prophet in Samaria who can heal Naaman's leprosy. How does he hear about this prophet? His servant girl probably better understand slave girl because of her origin. Uh, We mentioned earlier, she's an Israelite girl who was kidnapped, taken captive by an Aramean raid. And if you're kidnapping a person, you're not going to hire them. You're going to be like, oh yeah, just work for me a couple, uh, you know, for a certain amount of money per day. She's a slave. She's been enslaved. She ends up serving Naaman's wife, uh, whom she calls her mistress. And she tells Naaman's wife that she wishes her master visited the prophet in Samaria because that prophet would heal him. Naaman's wife tells Naaman, and Naaman tells the king. What were you going to say, Danny? No, it was just 
Yeah, she's not very old. I'm not exactly sure what little girl entails, but usually if it's saying little, I mean girl already means young, but little girl, we're probably talking to somebody who's not very old at all. And she was kidnapped. And she's not being taken back. And never is, according to this account. Not that we can see. Anyways, she tells about this prophet, Naaman hears about it. So a surprising chain of events to give Naaman this information. But he goes to the king, Naaman goes to his king, and he gets permission to set out for Samaria. What does Naaman take with him? A couple different things. He takes 10 talents of silver. Now talent, what's talent? A talent is 75 pounds, about 75 pounds. So how many pounds of silver is this? 750 pounds of silver, that's a ton of silver. And then 6,000 shekels of gold. Now, what's a shekel? What are 6,000 shekels? Another math question here. 3,000 shekels is equal to a talent. And we have 6,000 shekels. So how many pounds of gold? 150 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. A lot of silver, a lot of gold. And then also, what else is he taking? Ten changes of clothes, and then the letter from the king. There's a letter from the king as well. But he's bringing a lot of wealth with him, and he's going to have to transport all that wealth and secure all that wealth, which means he's taking some of his servants or slaves with him. Actually, the word used for servant here could mean servant or slave, so I'm going to refer to them both as slave or servant. We don't really know what kind they were. But he has slaves. They could be slaves also. Or they could be soldiers. But uh, they're called servants here. He's taking all this wealth with him, He's got this caravan. It describes the caravan as consisting of horses and chariots in verse 9. All of them are traveling to Samaria. When Naaman arrives in Israel and presents his king's letter to Jehoram, the king of Israel, how does Jehoram react? Yeah, very interesting response. He first tears his clothes, which is a sign of Grief or distress. He's, this is a terrible thing that's happened, that we've gotten this letter and that we see this person. And his conclusion, as you were saying, Danny, is that the king of Syria is trying to pick a fight with Israel. Basically, I'm sending you this servant for you to heal. Oh, you can't heal him? Then I'm going to go to war with you because that was very rude of you. Or that you, you refused to heal him. So he's saying, he's trying to pick a fight with me. This is terrible news. We're going to soon be going to war with Syria. What fact is Jehoram strangely forgetting or ignoring? that there is a prophet who can heal this man. He doesn't say, oh, I'll send you to Elisha right away. He just says, oh, I'm not God. I can't do anything for you. He's strangely forgetting about Elisha. Elisha hears about the king's reaction, though, and he says, send him to me. And he gives the reason, so that he will know there is a prophet in Israel. You make it look like there isn't. There is. Naaman brings his entourage to Elisha's house, and Naaman stands at Elisha's door. But the healing process, as arranged by God through Elisha, makes Naaman furious. What is it that Elisha says and does that enrages Naaman? Yeah, he doesn't even meet with him. He sends a messenger. He's at the door of his house. It wouldn't take too much effort for Elisha to come out, but he doesn't. He sends a messenger, and the messenger has a message. What about the message is offensive? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, yeah. He feels like it's a silly and 
easy thing to do. Go wash yourself in a river seven times. And then there's another aspect to that washing that also infuriates Naaman. Where is he supposed to wash? The Jordan. What's his view of the Jordan? Gross, non-special, certainly not a majestic river. There are way better rivers in Syria. Why would I have to go to the Jordan? So Elisha won't meet with him himself. He has to do something that seems silly and easy, and it's in the Jordan, the dirty, gross Jordan River. And he's ready to to turn away in a rage. He's going to storm off, but his servants entreat him. They say, and they say to Naaman, you were willing to do something hard. He's told you to do something easy. Why not do that? And Naaman listens to his servants, his slaves. And he travels the approximately 25 miles from Samaria to the Jordan River. He dips himself in the Jordan seven times, and his skin is restored, just like the soft and perfect skin of a baby. Naaman is even said to become clean. But Naaman doesn't just rejoice and go home. He returns to Elisha, who this time actually does present himself to Naaman. Now, because of the travel time, this would have been a day, two days, or three days later. Take some time to go to the Jordan and back. When he arrives back before Elisha, what does Naaman confess? I now know there's only one God, and it's your God. It's the God of Israel. It's Yahweh. There's no other God. I now know that. Naaman wants to give a gift to Elisha. After all, that's why he's brought all this fabulous wealth. But Elisha refuses, even when Naaman repeatedly urges Elisha to accept a blessing. That's actually the word gift. can be translated blessing. Accept a blessing from me. He says, nope, as the Lord lives, I will not accept a thing from you. Seeing that Elisha cannot be persuaded, Naaman instead asks Elisha for a gift, for two mule loads of soil from the land of Israel. What reason does Naaman give for this request? It is for sacrifice. He says, I want this soil so that I can sacrifice to Yahweh. That's, uh, notice the word for, eh, what's the exact verse here? Yeah, verse 17. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. What's the connection between the soil and sacrifice? We'll come to back to that in the interpretation step. But just notice that, observe that. Uh, okay. He also, before leaving, asks Elisha for Yahweh's pardon over one issue. What's the issue? Yes, he says, even though I'm going to serve Yahweh only, I do have a duty to go into the house of Rimen. My master is going to lean on me, and he's going to bow, and when he bows, I'm going to bow to another god in the house of Rimen. Now, what's this Rimen all about? According to John MacArthur, Rimen is a a parody, a Hebrew word that means pomegranate, but it's a parody of the Assyrian Ranunu, which means thunderer. So we're probably talking about Baal, um, Baal Hadad, the storm god. This would be the, another version of the Baal that was introduced into the northern tribes, the storm god, the sky god. It's one of the main gods in Syria. He says, I'm going to go into the house of Rimen, which is the house of Baal. So 
Naaman is essentially asking, when I support my master as he worships Baal and Baal's temple, and it looks like I'm worshiping Baal too, please let Yahweh pardon me. I'm not really worshiping Baal, but I have to be there for my master. What's Elisha's response? Go in peace. Which seems to suggest he has the pardon that he's asking for. Otherwise, you couldn't be going in peace. Now, it would be wonderful if the account stopped right here. Oh, great, wonderful, the miracle, that's wonderful. But there's an epilogue. Something else happens. After Naaman leaves, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, resolves to do something. What does he resolve to do? I'm going to go get something from Naaman. I'm going to go take something from Naaman. Gehazi secretly runs after Naaman, and he tells a lie about Elisha needing some gifts for some sudden visitors. Uh, for what does Gehazi ask specifically? Please give me two changes of clothes and a talent of silver. Remember, that's 75 pounds. In generosity, though, Naaman gives him two talents, 150 pounds of silver and two changes of clothes. Now, obviously, Gehazi's not going to be able to carry all that back, so some of Naaman's slaves, they carry it for him until... Gehazi gets close to his house. He's able to take the items from the servants of Naaman and put them away in his house. So the servants leave, and Gehazi goes back to the presence of his master. What lie does Gehazi then tell Elisha? Yeah, Elisha says, where have you been? Gehazi says, I didn't go anywhere. I've been here the whole time. But Elisha knows all along about what Gehazi is doing, as if his own heart was going with Gehazi. He saw it all. Elisha then asks a very interesting question. Is it time, Gehazi, to receive money, clothes, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, oxen, male and female servants? What's the expected answer? No, it's not time. It's not time. Therefore, what you did was very inappropriate. Gehazi sought to take some wealth from Naaman, but Elisha says Gehazi will really take something else. What is he taking from Naaman? His leprosy. You want to get something from Naaman? Well, you got it. It's his leprosy. And that's just, and Gehazi, it says at the end of the account, he leaves supernaturally leprous as white as snow. Okay, so we've gathered some observations on this, um, this chapter and the text here. Let's take these observations and now put some put them towards some interpretive questions. Do you have a question, Rob? Yeah. Well, he does say, good question, is Elisha really saying it's okay if you bow down to another god? Well, he does say go in peace, and he is God's representative here. So unless Elisha is saying something on his own and not consulting God and saying, oh, it's fine, then this seems to be something that is okay by God. Not that bowing down to another God is okay, but this particular circumstance that Naaman is in where he's required to do this duty, he's not really worshiping, but he has to support his master while his master worships. This particular situation seems to be pardoned by Yahweh. Yeah, George. Yeah, that's a good point too. And that certainly that coincides with some New Testament teaching where we say, or where we learn, an idol is nothing. So he says, I'm going into this temple. 
Um, I'm forced to be the support for my master, but really, I'm not serving that God. There is no God there. There's no God except in Israel. But that's a pretty particular situation. We know there's also some other New Testament teachings that say, beware of taking part in anything idolatrous. Don't go feasting in an idol's temple thinking, oh, an idol is nothing. Yeah, what were you going to say, Danny? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, certainly, we can see Naaman's heart. We can see that this really bothered him and that he wanted to bring it before Elisha. We just say real quickly, we don't want to take these concepts too far because we know that there are certain other parts of Scripture where, for example, the three friends of Daniel are told to bow down before the statue. They can't rationalize and say, well, we know the statue is really nothing, so if we bow, it doesn't really mean anything. They very clearly stand up and say, no, we have to worship the Lord only. We're not going to bow down before any idol. So we don't want to take any of the principles being exercised for Naaman here too far and say, oh, it doesn't really matter if you bow down to a statue as long as you think it's not really an idol. There, there are some subtleties to what God is, God is exactly pardoning here. All right, let's ask some interpretive questions. Here's a biggie. What kind of leprosy does Naaman have? What do you think? I would argue, yes, it is the mild form of chronic leprosy that covers the whole body. This is not the more serious form where your body is being eaten from the inside out. I would say this is the more mild form. This is still a very grotesque form of leprosy because if it is indeed like Miriam's, then he looks like a corpse. This isn't just like somebody who looks like an albino. This is someone who looks like he's uh, a corpse walking around. This is a very scary-looking skin condition, but technically it's uh, mild, and it's not going to kill him. Now, there are some tricky details that it's kind of hard to put together into a satisfactory interpretation. Verse 11 does say, I thought he would wave his hand over the place. That seems to suggest a localized lesion of leprosy. But then he says, the place and cure the leper which is weird because he's talking about himself. So why does he say it like that? And the word leper does not refer to a place. It refers to a person. So I'm, I'm kind of confusing statement there in verse 11. And also there's that detail that when he comes out of the Jordan, it said he is made clean. Well, technically, if he has full body leprosy, isn't he clean already? Is this another form of leprosy? Well, even if he does have full body leprosy, it obviously is not normal. So I think there's a sense that he would still be considered unclean, even if he is ceremonially clean in Israelite law. But I think the decisive details are the fact that Naaman is able to accomplish very much on behalf of his master. He's still able to interact with people who are not afraid of him, shunning him. And Gehazi, when he has the same form of leprosy, is still able to go into the king's court. Now, you can try and argue some certain things about 2 Kings 8 as being outside of the chronology, or maybe Gehazi got healed later, but I don't think those are persuasive. I think the the judgment on Gehazi proceeds forward into the chapters, because actually we don't even see Gehazi serving Elisha anymore. He's apart from Elisha at that time. So I think the judgment remained on him, but it was, again, that mild form of still grotesque-looking chronic body-covering leprosy. I would argue that's the kind of leprosy that Naaman has. He's completely snow-white, his hair is all white. And while this is not deadly, there are the periodic infections of the skin, of raw flesh. So that is assuredly painful and annoying. And socially, there's an obvious stigma because of his frightening appearance. Maybe that's good for battle, but socially, he looks very scary.
<clears throat> I believe that's the form of leprosy we're looking at here. Why does Naaman bring so much wealth with him? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. He's trying to buy the prophet's services. And this is totally normal for how the people of that time considered holy men and prophets. If you were to go down to a prophet, you always had to bring a gift with you. Go down to a seer or to a holy man. We actually see um, something like this happening in Numbers 22 to 24. Remember Balak consults Balaam, who's supposedly a prophet, and he's ready to honor him with all sorts of gifts. He says, just curse Israel for me. But when he doesn't do that, he says, oh, I was going to honor you, but now you get no honor because you're not doing what I want you to do. It's looking to buy the prophet's services. You can call it a gift. Oh, I'm just really thankful for what you did. But essentially, it's buying the prophet's services. And this is customary, so Naaman brings all these gifts. Why does Elisha refuse the gifts? Yeah, Roy. Right, so to... Right. To accept the payment would be to really prostitute his position as prophet. I'm not in it for myself, and God is not a God who needs money. God acts for according to his own glorious and holy purposes. Therefore, it's not appropriate for me to accept any gift from you. I'm not a prophet for hire, and God is not a genie who if you pay him... Or God is not some God, or if you just pay him, he'll do what you want. Yeah, Roy. Yeah, that's a great point, Roy. The faith healing and the prosperity gospel, they invert exactly about what Elisha is doing here. And they're acting just like the prophets of the pagan nations, where accept a gift, give me some sort of money, and then God will do what you want. Though, when Elisha explains his reasoning to Gehazi, he says something different, something in addition that is very interesting. He says it is not the time to be receiving wealth, receiving gifts. Why not? Why is it not an appropriate time? Because it suggests that there is an appropriate time, or something like an appropriate time, but that is not the time right now. Why not? What could be a possible reason? Yes, Dwayne. Yeah, okay, that's a that's definitely a, a cogent explanation that he says, for this miracle, it's important that we don't accept any wealth because we're trying to present our position and God's position in a certain light. So if you, by you accepting this gift, you're really polluting that message that, that God is putting forth through this miracle. Why else? Why else is it an appropriate, inappropriate time for, be, for gathering or for accepting wealth? Yeah, Roy. Okay, um, that's an interesting thought. The 
It's certainly true. Well, no. I'll say one thing and then I'll say the other thing. It's the Syrian paying the Israelite here, or seeking to pay. So it would not be exactly paying off because the raids seem to be coming from Syria unless he's trying to pay off the Israelites so they don't raid Syria. Uh, We don't know if they were raiding Syria. But we would expect the payment to be going the other direction if there were indeed a paying off for the raids. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned raids and Syria's relationship as an enemy of Israel because, as I said before, right here in this chapter begins a number of accounts about how Syria wars with Israel. They devastate Israel, actually to the point where they besiege Samaria and the inhabitants are so desperate that they start cannibalizing their own children. So I think there is a sense that we can say it's inappropriate for us to be accepting this gift or trying to gather wealth and trying to enjoy wealth because think about what's about to happen. The chastisement of God through Syria is about to come upon Israel. It would be silly for us to try and um, make ourselves comfortable with wealth. We're about to go under siege in a city. We're going to have to leave this wealth behind. We can't lug around 150 pounds of silver. Or um, if we're trying to hold on to these wealth, these things are going to be taken by the enemy. Right now, we really need to put our priorities somewhere else. It's not appropriate for us to be gathering wealth and trying to enjoy wealth. I think along with that, we can also say the spiritual state of Israel makes it inappropriate for the prophets to be gathering or enjoying wealth. There's an important and difficult job for the prophets to do. They need to be God's soldiers. They need to be prophets calling the people of Israel back to repentance. They cannot afford to be weighed down with wealth, taking on its cares, getting distracted by its comforts, because Israel's soul is in peril. The northern tribes in which Elisha and Gehazi are ministering, they have been idolatrous for a long time. They're beginning, there's a revival beginning, but there's important work to be done. There's still much wickedness going on. Before the prophets can rest and enjoy God's blessings, the nation needs to turn back to Yahweh. Remember, God did promise rest and prosperity to Israel. He says, when you follow me, I'll bring you into the land, I'll give you such blessing, and I want you to enjoy it. But they're not following Yahweh right now. So it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for people to just be at rest and just enjoying the various blessings of God uh, one of those what blessings would be in wealth, because Israel is not obedient. They are under the threat of God's judgment. What would the rest of the people of Israel think if they see the prophets acquiring wealth and taking their ease? Would they not take that as a sign that everything's okay? No worries, everybody. We're good. Just enjoy yourself. Seek whatever pleasures you want, because the prophets are settling down. So we can too. I think we can say that another reason why it's inappropriate for Gehazi or Elisha to accept the wealth is because it sends the wrong message to Israel. It makes them think that everything's okay. It's going to distract the prophets from ministry. There's such important work to be done. The spiritual state of Israel makes it inappropriate for us to be accepting wealth or trying to gather and enjoy wealth. Chastening is coming. Judgment is coming. And the message that we're even just trying to... to, portray right now to to Naaman and to those who are witnessing this is sullied by your obtaining wealth on my behalf. Remember he says, it's not because I want this. He says, Elisha wants this. He sent me. That's exactly in contrast to what Elisha had said before. No, by the Lord, I will not accept anything from you. So 
This is the wrong message. This is the wrong time for receiving wealth. What's really interesting, we don't have time to pursue this right now, is that you can see this theme in other parts of the Old Testament. Where there's an inappropriate time for accepting wealth or for trying to enjoy wealth. Ecclesiastes 10 is one example. Solomon writes that, Woe to the nation whose princes feast in the morning and get drunk in the morning. Why? That's totally inappropriate time. They're only doing that because they know judgment is coming and they want to enjoy themselves while they can. No, he says, they, the, Blessed is the kingdom whose princes feast at the appropriate time because they're following after the Lord. And there's also um, some other things in the, uh, the, the latter prophets. Interestingly, there's also a section in Jeremiah where Jeremiah is told to purchase a deed of property right before Israel is about to be invaded. And Jeremiah's like, why did you want me to do that? That's the total opposite of what you'd expect. He says, it's going to be assigned Israel that they will be restored. There will be a time for owning houses and property again when I restore Israel. Anyways, let's ask another question. What's at the root of Naaman's anger over Yahweh's method of healing? Pride, clearly, pride. He says, I had an idea of what was supposed to happen. And remember, he's a great man, so... His, his idea perhaps carried a lot of weight in his mind. Consider who I am. I thought things were going to happen a certain way. But they didn't. And so he becomes angry. It was his pride. What then is required for Naaman to actually be healed? What changed in Naaman? He has to humble himself. He has to submit to God's way, and he has to humble himself. So to be healed... He needs to be humbled. Naaman says that he wants some earth from Israel in order to properly sacrifice to Yahweh. What's the connection here? Edwin. Right, Balak and Balaam you're talking about, yeah. So in this case, you know, he would have taken the dirt back so that he could worship uh, um, worship God somehow. Right. This appears to be, just repeat your thought, Dwayne, this appears to be uh, an erroneous but a common understanding of the time that the gods had certain territories, uh, they were connected to certain lands, and therefore if you were to properly worship that god, you needed to be in that land or take some of that land with you. And so he feels like, it's only appropriate for me to worship Yahweh if I have the soil of Yahweh's land. Um, it is true in a sense that Yahweh was connected to the land of Israel. It was the special land that he had given um, to Israel. But certainly, you don't need the soil of Israel to worship Yahweh. Apparently, Naaman seems to think so. But again, this shows, even if he's mistaken, his commitment to worshiping Yahweh. That there's going to be a testimony to the people of Syria. <laughs> why did you bring all this earth back? And why are you sacrificing only on that piece of earth? And why are you sacrificing to this other God? Because he understands there is no other God but Yahweh. So this is another fruit of Naaman's genuine belief and faith and trust in the Lord. Even if it is somewhat mistaken, it's a clear testimony of his trust in Yahweh. Now, some Bigger questions. Consider this miracle. Hang on to your question. We might have some time in the end. Consider now this miracle with Naaman in the context of the preceding miracles of chapter 2. 
3 and chapter 4. Taken together, what does this account show us about God? Yes, there is a, an extension that God not only cares for Israelites, but he cares about Gentiles too. What is the defining feature that results in God's favor to both? It is his mercy, but it is extended to whom? To the humble, right? This goes back to one of the most basic principles that we've seen even since the beginning of the Pentateuch, that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And it doesn't matter who they are or where they are. Gentiles like Rahab, like Ruth, like Naaman, they can have the same grace. And conversely, stubborn Israelites who do not humble themselves before the Lord, even though they are part of God's covenant, his special covenant people, they will miss out on God's grace. They will be opposed by God and they will be cursed by God. And that's exactly what we see here, right? Naaman, technically an enemy of Israel, receives God's blessing because he humbles himself. But Gehazi, an Israelite, a servant of God's prophet himself, obtains God's curse because he hardened his heart and he disobeyed Yahweh. He decided to pursue greed rather than to trust in the Lord and to be satisfied in the Lord. So we see here this divine principle emphasized in connection with all these other miracles. The Israelites, those righteous Israelites who humble themselves, they receive God's deliverance, God's provision, and God's blessing, but also the Gentiles. But those who did not humble themselves, like the boys who made fun of Elisha, like the wicked king of uh, Israel, and like Gehazi, they obtained God's curse. Now this is, of course, a principle that Israel in exile needed to understand. Because remember, that's when Second Kings was written to. It was written to the Israelites post-exile, or in their exile. He wants them to understand this principle. Follow after the Lord. Humble yourself. Trust in the Lord. Obey the Lord. And he will deliver you. He will provide for you. Don't be stubborn in your heart. Don't be like, oh, we're Israelites, so we're going to get God's blessing no matter what. No, don't be stubborn in heart because you'll obtain the consequences, just like some of the people mentioned here. This was meant for the Israelites to understand this basic, important, divine principle. And of course, it's meant for us too. We'll explore that just a little bit later. A couple more questions. Hmm, running short on time. So we'll try and go through this a little bit more quickly. Naaman's healing features many parallels to salvation in Jesus as presented in the New Testament. What are some parallels? How is what happens to Naaman similar to what happens to someone who is saved by Jesus? Yeah, Roy. Yeah, uh, those, are, those are both true. God is gracious in both circumstances to heal Naaman and also to save somebody from sin, but it requires a 
Obedience to God, which requires a humbling before God. Amen had an idea of how he thought things were supposed to happen. Just as some people today have an idea of how salvation is supposed to work. We often hear people say, oh, that's too easy. Or that's foolish. What a, what a silly message that someone could actually believe this. He says, no, if you say that and you remain stubborn in heart, you miss out. You will not obtain God's deliverance. You will not obtain God's salvation. Just as Naaman would not have obtained God's healing. So we do see the parallel there. Something else, Roy? That's right. Uh, we can also make a parallel between the Elisha not accepting any gift. There's no way that you can purchase or that you can earn God's, fa- or God's salvation. Just as Naaman, there's no way that he could purchase the services of the prophet or, of Yahweh's, or purchase Yahweh's healing. It was merely on the basis of God's, um, God's mercy towards the humble. And we could point out some other parallels. Naaman needs healing and cleansing from leprosy, just as we need healing and cleansing from sin. Uh, Naaman is an enemy of Israel, just as we are enemies of God. Uh, Naaman's healing is impossible without supernatural intervention, just as our salvation is impossible without God's supernatural intervention. Naaman is cleansed through water. Christians are cleansed through baptism. And we could point to a number of different things. There are very many noteworthy parallels between salvation in Jesus and the healing of Naaman. But not everything aligns perfectly to make this metaphor of salvation. For example, Naaman is told to dip seven times in the Jordan. Christians don't do anything seven times as part of obtaining their salvation. Uh, Christians obtain salvation on the basis of the substitutionary sacrifice. But there's no substitution or sacrifice here. No one takes on Naaman's sickness. If Naaman truly had body covering leprosy, as I've argued, then he would have technically been ceremonially clean even though people outside of Jesus are totally unclean all the time. And Naaman's leprosy would not have been deadly, though annoying, but our sin plague is very deadly, and it will destroy us. It ruins every part of our lives eventually, and it will damn us forever. So the parallels are not complete, even though there are a number of parallels. So here's the critical question. Can we say, that the writer of 1 Kings intended to write the account of Naaman's healing as an analogy for salvation in Christ? Was it supposed to be a direct analogy? It was not. It was not intended as a direct analogy or metaphor for salvation in Jesus. To make this account directly about the gospel is to alter the originally intended meaning of the text, which is eisegesis. It's over-spiritualizing. You may ask, well, why are there so many parallels? We see so many connections to salvation in Jesus. How can you say that it was not meant that way? Well, the answer is because of the gospel principles in this account. God does not change. He acts a certain way. He always conforms to his own character. And we see that character on display here just as we see it on display in the gospel. There are elements of the gospel here. There are principles, divine principles, eternal truths, gospel gospel principles, whatever you want to call them, that uh, are evident here. But they are not, the, the account is not a direct analogy to Jesus and the gospel of salvation. This is the same thing that I argued, and hopefully you persuaded by, when we talked about Abraham's offering Isaac on Mount Moriah. A lot of parallels to salvation in Jesus. But was that written as a perfect analogy of salvation? It was not, because the analogy is not perfect. In the same way, here we see many gospel principles, many divine principles, but this is not a perfect analogy of salvation. This is an important a concept for us to understand 
so that we do not eisegete. Even in the name of something that seems um, pious and that seems worshipful. Yes, all of scripture, including the Old Testament, is about Christ. But that does not mean every detail or even every healing, cleansing, or deliverance is directly about Jesus. Those principles, those gospel principles, evident in the Old Testament, they find their full expression and their full fulfillment in Jesus. But not every detail of the Old Testament is directly about Jesus. We could talk more about that later, but we're pretty short on time. With our last minute, let me just propose to you a couple of questions. Because this was meant for our instruction, how can we apply this word in the real world? First, we need to consider whether we humble ourselves in the same way that Naaman was required to humble ourselves. Have we done that when it comes to salvation in general? Or do we still have in our minds a way that salvation is supposed to work, like Naaman did? Also in sanctification, the second question here, have we humbled ourselves? Do we say, oh, I, I hear that God wants me to do this, or he calls Christians to do this, but I know better. You can't mean that, because I have some other wisdom that apparently was forgotten by God. Or maybe this is true for other Christians to do and other Christians to follow, but it doesn't apply to me. Are we stubborn in heart? Have we not humbled ourselves? And therefore, are we in danger of coming under God's curse? And then finally, we also have to answer the question that Gehazi was asked. What about today? Is today a time for gathering and enjoying wealth? And I think if we consider the instruction of the New Testament, we have to say no. It's not that time today either because of the same reasons. Because of the mission that we've got to do, because of the danger that the world is in, because of the judgment that is coming on the world. I could point you to a number of New Testament verses. We don't have time, but 1 Corinthians 7, I, do, I will just mention by way of paraphrase, Paul is talking about marriage and talking about life situation. He says, don't worry about changing your life situation. That's going to distract you. In view of the present distress, it's good for every man to remain as he is. And even if you do get married or even if you do change your life station, don't let that distract you. It says, those who are married should live as if they did not, were not married. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who have wealth as though they were not making use of it. Because the form of this world is passing away. So, you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, do we live as if it is time for us to be gathering and enjoying wealth? Or do we live like Elisha? Okay, we're over time. But this is the last lesson for the summer. I mean, last lesson for the quarter. Next week, we start our summer Sunday school series. Khalif will be leading that. And he's talking about wealth and managing money, which, of course, is very appropriate considering our lesson today. We'll resume our Answers Bible curriculum in September. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, there's still more work to be done. Cause this word to sink into us, that we may meditate on it, and that your spirit would do the necessary soul surgery so that we will not remain stubborn in any way and that we may experience your deliverance, your cleansing, your healing, and your blessing and that we would not instead fall under your curse. Lord, I pray that you bless the rest of the service today. In Jesus' name, amen.